It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and uh, thanks for joining us this week. we got some uh, fun things we're going to do. We're going to call into one of my favorites, uh, Brian Kilmeade, one of the hardest working guys in television and radio. Um, you know him from Fox and Friends. And for those of you more on the West Coast, maybe you don't see Brian as often, guy starts at 6 a.m. Uh, East Coast time, works till 9, then from 9 to noon, He's recording and doing his Brian Kilmeade radio show, and he's also got books out. So we're going to talk to him. We're going to phone him and should have a good conversation uh, because he's just uh, he's got a fascinating background, how he ended up uh, working at Fox and look forward to calling him. Uh, we're going to give some thoughts on the news. And then, of course, we're going to highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. So looking forward today to uh, uh, call and Brian kill me. But first, I want to give a little riff on some of the news items that are out there. Um, and look, this stuff changes every hour. So we'll see how it goes. But this whole idea of a vaccine mandate, something that is going to be required uh, of private companies. Uh, I'm glad to see that Senator Braun, Senator Mike Lee have really been pushing the envelope to get people to force a vote. There's a procedural way to actually make this vote happen in the United States Senate and on the floor of the House, despite whatever the leaders want to do. And I think you're going to see that it's going to be a bipartisan effort of people on the record, should this or should this not be in place. And I just don't think it should. I don't think your ability to, to earn a livelihood should be based on whether or not the government has injected you with a vaccine. I also think there are lots of viable vaccine um, uh, people out there that say, I just don't want to get it for whatever reason. Maybe they had COVID. Uh, maybe they're pregnant and uh, going to have a baby and there hasn't been any testing done on what that might do to a baby. Um, I've had the vaccine fully. Uh, my wife's had it, but I'm not here to say that it's for everyone all the time. And there's breakthroughs, right? So sometimes people with vaccine get the get COVID. Sometimes they don't. It's a very dangerous precedent uh, that we're walking down to suggest that the government can inject you with something that, quite frankly, you may or may not want. As much as I'm convinced it might be good for you, doesn't mean that you're convinced that it's good for you. So... Uh, that's not what a suspicionless um, American who's done nothing else wrong should have to endure. So this is going to come up for a vote, and I, I'm glad to see, and I hope everybody's paying attention to how their representative and how their senators uh, vote. Uh, also concerned about uh, Russia. Russia's knocking on again on the door of Ukraine. Now, remember, they went and took the Crimea region of Ukraine. They did this previously under the Biden administration when he was there with Barack Obama. So Crimea was has also has fallen in the past. Now the prevailing thought is that Russia is going to go in and take more. That's because they don't feel a threat. They don't think that there's going to be any repercussions, serious repercussions from a Joe Biden. Uh, you also have China knocking on the door and pushing the envelope there in Taiwan. Prevailing thought there is that sometime after the Olympics, the Chinese might make a move. And you'll have to have a lot of other rogue nations and uh, rogue regimes and terrorist organizations making moves because they don't feel like there's going to be a consequence. You know, look at Joe Biden and what he's doing on our southern border. Do you really think that we're going to protect the borders of Taiwan if we don't even protect our own borders here in the United States? I mean, it, it, there's no consequence for criminals here. If Joe Biden and the Democrats had their way, they they just they don't seem to want to think that there needs to be uh, consequences for petty theft, for instance. In California, they move up the threshold to $1,000. So guess what? They just never enforce it. Cops don't even show up anymore. Consequently, you have these brazen attacks on stores. I'm just saying it's the same type of mentality when you look at it on the world stage and big players 
is there going to be a consequence? Is there a policeman, if you will, on the block that's going to catch me, embarrass me? Um, and are there going to be consequences that are far greater than whatever the crime is that I might commit? That principle is true if you're a small business or small community or a, a petty theft, or if you're a big world player like Vladimir Putin, and he's making a decision as to whether or not going in and taking more of Ukraine might be in the best interest of Russia. What are the repercussions? Yeah, I can live with it. You know, it's kind of the thing. I mean, look, Russia went in and took about, I believe it was 25% of Georgia, the country of Georgia. Uh, not nearly the type of pushback from Europe and the United States that there should have been, could have been, and probably even could be uh, if they were serious about making sure that Russia didn't continue to expand its borders. All right, I also want to talk about what's going on at CNN. CNN's having some problems, uh, to say the least. I mean, think of the far cry. When I was younger and CNN and we were at war and there were all kinds of things going on, Wolf Blitzer was out there and at the Iraq, you know, CNN was a network to be reckoned with. I mean, that's where you turn to get the international news. Think of where they've gravitated to over the time under the leadership of Jeff Zucker. You know, you can look at the Cuomo situation. You can look at the Jeffrey Tubin situation. You can look at a variety of different scandals that they have had. And what has been the consequence of those scandals? Uh, what has been the leadership out of that? What had been the lessons learned? And uh, you, you know what? Jeff Zucker still at the helm of CNN. I don't understand how Jeffrey Tubin pulls down his pants in a, a company call on Zoom with lots of other people out there and starts, uh, you know, doing his uh, thing and then just gets suspended for a little bit. How do you keep your job as a legal analyst for a news network when that's what you do in public? That makes absolutely no sense. Oh, I made a mistake. A mistake? Come on. And I tell you what, if more stuff hadn't been put out by the attorney general there in the state of New York, I don't think CNN was going to make a move on, on Cuomo and dismiss him. Well, look, uh, I worked for Fox News. Um, and so you can say, oh, well, it's just a competitor and whatnot. CNN's going to have to live with that. If you want to keep coming in third, just keep coming in on third. I, as somebody who actually works at Fox it's just disappointing to see because it, it just it taints the whole industry and it, it, it's just a shame the the way it's gravitated and I, I Jeff Zucker is the common denominator there. All right, and uh, number four, I want to talk about uh, Build Back Better. They got a problem over with Build Back Better. Joe Biden uh, got all excited. Nancy Pelosi was so proud that she passed it. And remember how quickly they rushed it. it. A lot of talk about it. Nobody could see the bill. Then as soon as they had the text of the bill, literally within hours, they were on the rules committee there in the House of Representatives and then voting on it before you could possibly imagine. Certainly not the degree of scrutiny, openness, transparency, debate that you would expect a bill that is literally trillions of dollars. No, they rushed that through. Well, guess what? It's got what's called a bird problem. When we say bird problem, you know, we hear bird, bird bath, bird rule. It's referring to Senator Bird, B-Y-R-D. He's since passed waves from West Virginia. Longest serving senator, I think, in the history of the United States Senate in 51 years in the United States Senate. Um, and there's what's called the bird rule. And the bird rule says that you can use the budget reconciliation, which only requires 50 votes in the Senate, to pass a number of things on it. But it needed some guardrails. You can't legislate on this type of bill. So, for instance, if you put out a piece of uh, legislation on, say, immigration, and it really didn't have anything to do with budgeting or taxes, either revenue or spending – then that would be considered a violation of the bird rule because it would be legislating, not dealing with the budget. The expedited manner in which they move through reconciliation is an effort to get through a budget, which has to get through every year. It is not subject to filibustering or getting to that 60 vote threshold. But there's the problem. So if you recall, Nancy Pelosi a while ago, long time ago, passed out the Build Back Better bill but they've never sent it to the United States Senate. It's never been sent over. 
Why hasn't it been sent over? Because it's got some bird problems. It's got to go through the bird bath, as they affectionately call it. And going through the bird bath, I think they're recognizing that their exuberance and rush, they started legislating rather than actually passing through things that were just about revenue and expenditures. The consequence is that the Senate has nothing to vote on over there because, according to the Constitution, all spending bills must originate in the House of Representatives. So that's a long way of saying if the House does send it over and it has bird problems, then it doesn't qualify for reconciliation. If it doesn't qualify for reconciliation, it has to get 60 votes. If it has to get 60 votes, there's no way they can possibly pass it. Interesting, isn't it? That's what's happening behind the scenes, and that's why you haven't seen anything on Build Back Better yet. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more right after this. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. All right, let's transition to the stupid, because you know what? There's somebody always doing something stupid somewhere. You know, one of the uh, ones that qualifies for this more often than not is uh, is uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who claimed, I love this, she claimed that some of these break-ins, that some of these mobs that are out there ransacking in California and other places around the country, that that was just uh, made up. That, you know, it, that it wasn't, she said, she highlighted that it was maybe just a Walgreens, but it really turned out to be nothing. Well, there's video after video after video. The attorney general, the Democrat for the state of California has highlighted it as a problem. Um, and all you need to do is turn on the videotapes and you will see situation after situation after situation. Even the National Association of Retailers, I think is the name of their organization, has come out and said this is a problem. It's been pegged as tens of billions of dollars in program. And AOC's out there saying, yeah, not really a problem because I, I think it's kind of made up. I don't know what world she lives in. But how can you bury your head in the sand and not understand that when the state of California moved the threshold for felonies up to $1,000, that anything you steal less than that is just a petty theft? Guess what? The police are not going to respond. The police are not going to go out and arrest people. And so when they made that simple move, they go to cashless bail. Then guess what? These things happen time and time and time again. And perpetrators look at this and just say, there's no consequence. So why not take the risk? If I do get caught, I'll be back out the same day. And if I do get caught, I'm probably not going to get prosecuted. So let's just go into these stores and they brazenly go and do this. And I don't see the Biden administration has put together a task force on, you know, what's going on with students and, and teachers and, oh, school board meetings for parents Gosh, we got to have a national dragnet of FBI agents to deal with that. But I don't see them helping and assisting on these these thefts. Here's what's going to happen. And this is why I think it's so, so stupid. It should not be a race to try to figure out who's going to be the next inner city of Baltimore. You know, back in the day when Elijah Cummings was with the Oversight Committee, I actually went with Elijah to inner city Baltimore. And I started learning about food deserts and other things. And I thought, what in the world is this? Well, they had had so much previous crime that they would not, they don't have retailers, financial services, grocery stores, drug stores. They don't have these in certain parts of the city, places in the city where people don't have readily available transportation. And so the consequence is kids were just eating food that they could get at the local liquor store. They don't have fresh fruit. They don't have vegetables. They don't have salads. They don't have access to medicine other than a few over-the-counter things and certainly not open 24-7. So you want to get rid of a CVS or a Walgreens that used to be open 24 hours. Now they're going to limit their hours saying, oh, we're going to only be open during daylight hours, maybe till 5 p.m. because we can't afford to have the mobs come in and just steal all our stuff. Who's that going to hurt? It's going to hurt the inner city folks, the people with the lowest of incomes, the most vulnerable in our communities. And it makes me mad. It's not just stupid on the part of AOC and these and these Democrats who run these cities, but it is just such bad public policy. And who wants to walk around a city looking over your shoulder wondering if it's safe or not? 
Lexing- Lexington and like 59th Street in New York City just had a brazen attack. That is not normally associated with being a rough part of town. This happens time and time again. It, get, it happens when there's not cops on the beat that have the support of the community and the leaders. It happens when you have uh, cops out there that are not supported by their public officials. And when they don't have public uh, prosecutors who will actually prosecute for the crimes of the people that are brought in. I'm not saying 100% of them are guilty, but you know what? Bring them in, put them before a jury. And then allow that decision to be made. If you're going to continue on and bury your head in the sand like AOC, that is stupid. That is my bringing on the stupid this week. All right. Time to bring on uh, Brian Kilmeade. I want to dial up Brian. Brian's a great guy. Like I said, he's one of the hardest working people at Fox. He's got a fascinating story. Fox and Friends for three hours. The Brian Kilmeade radio show. Uh, He does it all. He's written books. So let's give a call to Brian Kilmeade. Hello? Brian. Hey, Jason Chaffetz. Sorry to wake you up. You never wake me up because I haven't slept ever. I, this is the very true. You're like the hardest working guy that I you could possibly imagine. Like, You do Fox and Friends at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, right? You're going, yeah. what time do you actually wake up to say, all right, time to roll, time to get to the studio? Uh, 2.30. 2.30? Yeah, out of the house at 3.00. And then you, you know, the busiest time I have is from three until five fifty-eight, and then along the way, you know, because I'm formatting the radio too, sending sound bites and so. Oh, this would be a great idea. This would be a great idea, and also trying to anticipate what they're going to try to do on Fox and Friends. So it's not hard. It's just interesting, you know, because a lot of the stuff, you know, the news news did break overnight, so it's not a review. Like half of it. Is relatively new. Where there's angles on the same story that we're covering. You know the five things that got to get done before the, the economy crashes. What Joe Biden said or didn't say. So there's always these angles and these other storylines that got to we got to follow up on. But I'm trying to do two th- both shows at the same time. Really, I mean that is amazing to do kind of six hours straight. And um, but you've been doing it for a long time. But now, you fill in and- for me. You do a great job. It was pretty natural for you, right? Well, thanks. I love it. I really do enjoy it. But, you know, I'm doing three hours when I've done on the radio. I've done Fox and Friends, like on the weekends and whatnot. But, um, man, to do that, you know, five days a week, uh, the schedule and pace that you have, that's, that's, it's impressive. It really is. Well, thanks. I mean, the thing is, I mean, people always strive to get this job. So I don't want to take a day for granted. It took me 12 years to get a job at Fox just being the fill in sports guy. And when you can grab, you know, these additional opportunities, that's what I look at as opportunities. I don't uh, really consider it work. I mean, I'm, I'm so I, I think, you know, I'm so into these stories that I would just be the annoying deli guy talking about these stories if I worked in a deli. <laughs> yeah, you, you, I could see that. Um, <laughs> annoying people but, at a deli. That's nice. Yeah, I could see that. Um, you but you are passionate about it and you know your stuff. And I think that's uh, that's what radiates, right? You're fun. You got energy and um, you care about these stories. And uh, because it and, affects it, our country. Well, it affects everybody's family, affects the country. Um, and I've also, I've actually started reading your books. Thanks. I wish my, I wish my history class going up in school, cause I, history, yeah, I did all right. I, I did all right. But I wish they, I, I love the way, like I'm go, right now going through the Alamo. And so, but you've got a new book that's also out. Yeah. The President and Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. I'm trying to move up the ladder. George Washington's Secret Six. I thought I found an angle in the Revolutionary War that really wasn't well plowed. And then with Thomas Jefferson, he's done so much, but not many people focused on what he did to take on Islamic terror, that Washington didn't have a Navy to take on, that Adams wanted no part of. I thought, man, that I, that could relate to the headlines too. And then when, when President Trump gets elected, I, I just to luck to the luck of it, people made parallels to Andrew Jackson. And I was working on the War of 1812, thought about the Battle of Baltimore because Star Spangled Banner was in the news. And then people said, no, no, do the Battle of New Orleans. It was, uh, there's a lot we don't know. And Jackson emerged from that. So I, I went there and I really found it fascinating. And a lot of these people were able to keep this story alive for a lot of years, the battle that everyone thought didn't need to be fought and absolutely had to. And then with, uh, I thought the other thing with, with Fox Nation and FD, you've done work with them, 
I was able to do What Made America Great. They let me do this series. I'm up to 36 of them, one of which was the Alamo. And I didn't know much about Texas history, but everyone talks about the Alamo. I said, what happens next? So I did a feature on the Alamo. I got all these resources and all these people that helped me out with it on and off camera. And then afterwards I said, well, what happens next? Well, it's a battle to San Jacinto. That's when Sam Houston emerges and wins in 17 minutes and beats this formidable army. And I go, well, what if I leave the Alamo and tell you what happens next? Because I don't think I could do the Alamo better than everybody else, which led me to the either the Mexican War uh, or we go to the Civil War. And I thought that talking about Douglas and Lincoln would be something that's not necessarily plowed ground and how they're related to each other. So that's how I came onto this topic. No, they're really, I, you know, it, it's it's very well written. Did you honestly? Do you do you think your English teacher back from high school? I'm in touch. Really I'm in touch with my social that- studies teacher uh, regularly, and and, um, and he was unbelievable. And I had one in twelfth uh, grade that passed away. He was fantastic, but the one that really got me going was this this eighth grade social studies teacher because he wouldn't tell me the stories he would act it out and i remember him spreading out the desk because i need everyone to spread out their rows of the desks and i need (laughs) one side to grab a a rip paper out of your loose leaf and hold it you get two each okay now when i say so this side attack but you got to go up and down up and down up and down so we go up and down and he goes stop right before you're about to hit he goes now picture that being a gun and picture you saying to yourself would you come out of from behind your desk now and know you could get shot this is called world war one trench warfare and i always remembered then you watch the video and the film and the guts it took to run out of those trenches wow. yeah. and, and attack and i go wow this guy kept demonstrating everything that just while re, while continuing to drill us on the presidents every day in a fun way he'd go okay who wants to try the presidents today and i'm like okay here we go and everyone would get stuck on buchanan and uh J, you know uh garfield and you know the no name presidents that no one really paid attention to so and I remember just this class, and I kept in touch with this guy, and he ended up being the dean when my kids went to school in the same town. But the social studies teachers do make a difference if they treat it like a story. Tell people a story, and then also tell them at the end, by the way, this happened, and it's true. Here's a test on it. And that's the way I was lucky enough to have teachers. It really whet my appetite. Now, this is Massapequa High yeah. School, right? Yeah, big soccer town. Big soccer town and some famous people. Yeah, I mean, look, you're pretty famous in your own right, being on as much as you're on. But uh, I looked up Massapequa High School. There's some other famous people that graduated there. Who? Yeah, you ready for this? For yeah. One thing, um, born on the 4th of July, Ron Kovic. He's from Massapequa. He was portrayed by Tom Cruise in the movie. Then you have uh, Jerry Seinfeld. I worked for his dad. It was my first job. He had a sign shop. Alec Baldwin. Wait, wait, wait. Let's go back there for a second. You worked for Mr. Seinfeld? Yeah. We get working papers at 13, right? So I just said, now I got working papers. I had to go get money. And I started in my little town, and I walked in every single... I would even walk in a lawyer's office. You need any help? I need... This is how much I get an hour. I think it was three thirty-five an hour or whatever ridiculous minimum wage you legislatures made sure we don't earn money. Um, uh, So... Uh, at the last store was Jerry Seinfeld's dad's store called Cal Signs, and he was a legendary guy. He made all the signs in the school, and he would paint himself on the sign. He was like a little guy uh, with, and he, with a mustache, and he would paint himself in a cartoon character on all the signs. So <laughs> yeah. I came in, and I said, "Can I, you need help? He goes, can you draw? And I go, no, I'm a terrible artist. He goes, well, we need people to go out on sites and just lift stuff up and hold ladders and bring ladders out. I go, that sounds good. So I would come every Saturday, Friday after school and every Saturday for probably three or four months. And then one day I remember him, it looked like a garbage bag sign. It was just, it was look like just brown paper. He said, uh, Jerry will be on the Tonight Show tonight. And I said, who's Jerry? And he said, it's my son. <laughs> and he said, I, really? you know, his son, he's a comedian. And I go, wow. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy's not funny. And Seinfeld gets on, Carson Wade, to a long story short, I'm allowed to stay up to watch it. So one night, and he's on, and Jerry kills, and he asked him to sit down, and the story he tells is about his parents, that his parents 
He said, uh, the hardest, he goes, what made you be a comedian? He goes, I just wanted to be it. I, I came in the city. I did it one time, and I just got addicted to it. And he goes, well, what did your parents say when they, you, know, you went to college and you tell them you're going to be a comedian? He said, well, I sat my parents down. I said, I want to be a comedian. And they both got up and left, and they came back. And they said, well, I talked to your mother. The problem is, Jerry, we don't think you're very funny. <laughs> and that's the story he told, whether they said it or not, it was true. And I'm saying to myself, no, no, I don't think you're funny at home. I'm like saying to myself, because, well, you know, he's not trying to entertain a 13-year-old kid. But I just thought it was amazing that I would watch that full circle in front of me in Massapequa. But you got the Baldwins, too. You have um, uh, Mr. Baldwin was my summer creation. You'd be the supervisor there. So for three months, you'd go back to your grammar school and do all types of sports, softball and kickball and dodgeball. Mr. Baldwin would run it. He was a social studies teacher at the high school. And I never knew Alec, but I knew Danny, Billy, and Steven. And the daughters, I didn't really know too well. But Alec was already gone. I think he's 10 years older than me. And... um and his dad was the rifle team coach, which ironically, I thought about that too. And Alec Baldwin had these problems with his guns. I know he had to know guns. His dad actually was the rifle team coach. So, you really? know, yeah. So I'm just, you know, put that together. I'm saying to myself, there's no way he was a stranger to guns. Well, he certainly acted like one. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, don't know details, but that's ugly. So you're growing up, you're, you're a little kid, you're, you're playing soccer from like, Right when right out of the shoots, right? You're yeah, four first or five grade. years old. Yeah, uh, first grade. Um, you know, in my town, you know this because your dad was with the Aztecs, right? The, of the yeah. NSL. So yeah. the you know the Cosmos, the coach Gordon Bradley was a player coach when they played at Hofstra. He was in Massapequa. I actually was on the same team with his sons. So we had all these relocated Germans, first generation Germans and Irish and Italians, and. Uh, and they were just they just started a soccer league. And one guy's from Belfast, Northern Ireland. He started the whole thing. He walked down and said, I just need some fields. Like, I'm from this town. You should give us some fields. We should play soccer. Got 20 people, then 25 people, then enough for three teams. Next thing you know, our first and second team are playing in the state championships against each other. And no one could stay close. And Gordon Bradley would come back and coach. So the best coach in America was in my town. Coaching, wow. he would eventually coach Canalia and Pele. You don't really coach those guys. You put them out in the field. Right. And you guys would have Johan Cruyff, right, at the Aztecs. You had George Best. So the yep. best players in the world in the 1970s were in my backyard, and we would go to Giant Stadium in the middle of the week, 55,000 at Giant Stadium, to watch soccer. So. Yeah. I'm amazed now as these teams, the MLS is out there and and the MLS is is getting like millions of dollars for their franchises. So and everyone's dying to get into that league now. And the USL, the AAA of soccer, is also surging. It's got an ESPN contract. I watched their finals on ESPN, and it must be surreal for you too, Jason, to see soccer so accepted by non-soccer players, by just people yeah. who like sports. I'm going, wow, guys, I just can't get over it. I think once people kind of get in and start to appreciate, I mean, they always get mocked for, oh, yeah, one nothing, you know. But the, the sport is so great. And I think it really helps that both the men's and the women's have accelerated, yeah. have excelled to the point where it really is fun. And, yeah, I mean, that's how I really got into it because my dad became the managing general partner of the Los Angeles Aztecs and moved us down to Southern California. So, you know, I'm a little squirt. I'm kicking the ball around with guys like George Best and those people. And I'm like, I had no idea how cool it was. Elton John actually was uh, had a little sliver ownership in the team. He would come that. out to practice. No. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, it was a little bit surreal that I appreciate now. I didn't really appreciate it back then. But I just thought, yeah, you just kick the ball around and have some fun. And, so you and just, now your, your yeah. daughter, right? Both of them. Uh, they were playing Both in college. Yeah, my son played through high school, and he wanted to go to Syracuse. He wasn't good enough to play there. So he's like, you know what? I just want to go here, and I'm going to uh, major and do it, do my own thing. I go, okay. Uh, a little disappointed because he also played since he was younger. I thought he was a really good player. But my daughters uh, are play, played against each other this year, and they're in the Liberty Conference <laughs> in upstate New York. I don't want to give the names of the schools, but it's just fun to watch them compete and care so much. And then yeah. their friends are all, you know, to have friends to play a college sport, you got to be disciplined. I don't care what it is. It makes you compartmentalize your time and focus. It, it also it brings back a discipline that's going to help you to put that on your resume. I mean, I was an average player at best, but it's on my resume. I played through college on Division Two, 500 team. 
But everybody asks me about that. When you see soccer or any sport on a college resume, I think people just go, okay, it took discipline. You could not just sit there for four years and party. You had to focus and you have spring practice and accountability. You know what it's like to be in a team, to deal with the tribulations that go with that, coach challenges, player challenges, minutes challenge, uh, actually winning games, that challenge. So I'm just a big believer in competing. I think it is a differentiator. I've hired a lot of people through my career doing various things. And, and, and the ones that really thrive are people that have played either, um, you know, a sport, a solo sport, maybe like tennis, or, or they played a team sport. Cause you learn, you're right. You learn to, to win, you learn to lose. Uh, but you also have to be disciplined. You have to shut up when you, when you, when you want to, you know, belt something out that you shouldn't. Um, and, and you just learn so much and you learn to work that you can't get away with being playing sport that long without actually exerting yourself. So there's a lot to lots to be there. So it sounds like you really were in a shell younger in life. Like you really like this, you had to speak up and do things that, yeah. that <laughs> when did you break out of that shell, Brian? Um, yeah, I've never, I've been very disciplined to a degree, but I was a, a hardworking B student at best, you know, B, B plus student. And in college did better than that because I was able to get by without doing math because math, I struggle in math and science, but the other stuff, when it's just studying and grinding it out, I do well on, but I, I do not have the aptitude for math and not much in science. But on the other side, I've always I've always been into it from political science. I you know I could do the economic side, uh, political science, English, uh, all history type things. I always um, I've always done well because you could actually grind it out and study. I look at math, man, and I want to grind it out, and I just can't. It's almost like when they give me directions to put something together. I'll sit there and do everything. I lay out all the tools. I, I lay out everything in order, and just nothing comes natural in putting anything together. It's so funny you say that because we just had uh, a few weeks ago, I, I had Trey Gowdy on, and I know I know Trey really well, but I didn't know that he was actually going to be like a psychologist. And then he realized he had to take some some math and science and he's like i can't get through the math so what am i going to do and uh he got some counseling and they said well you should probably go into law that's how he ended up being a, <laughs> ended up going in law because he didn't want to go through the remedial math class that he was going to have to have and so it you have weird changed friends. the trajectory in his life yeah yeah you're listening to jason in the house we'll be back with more of my conversation with brian kilmeade right after this all right, so you're going along, and then you go to college, right? Yep. And, I went uh, to LIU Post, played uh, played Division two soccer there. Started for two uh, the first two years, almost every game, and my, we changed coaches. And the guy was not into me. I started half the games division, you know, in the junior year, and then last year he's, he basically had his own recruits in, and I helped pick the coach. Because I was looked at by the AD as like, listen, Brian, you're going to be part of the future of the program. We had to get rid of the coach. You want to be part of it from here on. You want to be part of the decision process. And I go, yeah. And I, this is a guy I selected, and he was just not into me as a player. And that was tough because I just feel like I wasted all my years. I'm like, I, from 5 to 22, played 300 days a year minimum. And I go, what? And I end up finishing on the field, but basically not really impacting the team in my final year. And I said, what a, what a waste that is. I mean, who finishes a, in a Division two 500 career uh, basically not having an impact? I'm like, how uneventful and, and anticlimactic that was. But it kind of got me ready to just, like, grind it out in this business. So you decide, okay, I got to do something. Then what would you do? Oh, uh, I mean, the I mean, whole time. I, I was on radio and TV. I mean, I was interning at NBC. I interned at a local station, really hands-on. I um, I was... Well, why? Why television? Why? Oh, and why radio you... and TV. I was doing it both at the same time. I've always wanted to do it. I always felt as though I was at my strength on my feet. I felt I could tell a story. I wanted to see if I could if I could bring in my interviewing skills and my personality, but I knew I had no interest or ability to act. So I thought TV news. And if I start establishing myself, segue into hosting. And that's why along the way I, I started doing stand up just to be quicker on my feet and be a better memorizer. So for 10 years, 
if while you're waiting for the great radio job to come through or in between radio hits and TV jobs to be able to go up at night and do stand up when they can say no to you, there's always a place to go up in terrible places, but there's always a place to go up almost, almost every night. So they would not so, stop. They couldn't stop you there. You didn't need a news director to say you're hired. So you were doing that in New York and sometimes you're making like nothing money, right? Oh I yeah. Mean, $25. Yeah. You don't do it for the money. You do it for see what connections you make. If you go up and you do a solid 12 minutes and get you 25 minutes and get you asked back again, and then you meet other people along the way. Like, I got UFC. I did the first four UFCs because the guy who was running, I think it was the New York Comedy Club or Ketcher or uh, Comic Strip, I got friendly with. And he also had Semaphore Productions. He was an executive there, and he would be producing comics and shows. And he said, I just got this offer from these Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys. They want to do mixed martial arts, and they want to to design some type of octagon, and they want to have a fight to the death. Are you interested in that? I go, really? I go, I'll I'll check it out for you, but I can't do fight to the death. So he showed it to me. He's like, what do you want to do? And I ended up doing the first four through a comedy connection. When you say doing that, you mean doing like the play-by-play or what were yeah, you doing? Yeah, I, I actually did the ring, uh, the octagon reporting. So after they got out and then one guy froze on the second one, he just got too nervous and yeah. they called me up in my headset. They go, can you do play-by-play? I go, why? When? Next one? He goes, now. He froze. I go, oh my goodness. All right. Give me the headset. So I just jumped over and I had an expert next to me and Jim Brown to the right of me who I had been hosting a show with and, and I brought him into it. So we all, you know, we watched each other's back. I kind of knew the fighters inside and out by then and we were able to to do it. So I did play by play. The second one, third one, I had time to think about it. I didn't do that well. The fourth one, I went back to ringside reporting and then I just went on to other things and I said, whatever you do, don't ever put that on your resume because it's going to be outlawed soon. I go, okay. So I kept it on my resume. Now it's bigger than life. It's bigger than boxing. It's one of the top sports in the country. Dana White, I just interviewed him. Um, He's up to, what are they up to? 268, UFC 268. I did the first four. Wow. And so... How did you break into Fox? When did that happen? I mean, you had some steps along the way, right? Yeah. You didn't go from UFC 12 years. to Fox. No, I mean, I I mean, I mean, got out of college. I went right to Bennigan's where I continued to waiter. At the same time- Were you I good st- at that? Were you a good waiter? I thought I was good. I mean- Did you like write down the order or were you one of those guys who thought he could memorize it all? Never tried to memorize it because I want good. to get it right. Yeah. I'm I don't not- like that. You know, when that guy comes to my table, I'm like, they're not going to get it right. I feel like you're overqualified. If you're memorizing like a table of fives, order appetizers and dessert, I'm like, you should be doing something else, right? Like you should be working on the space program. Yeah. Just write it down because you know what? My wife never orders off the menu. She has to, Uh, I don't, we, we pull up to McDonald's, Brian, and I'll say, what do you want? And she'll say, I got to look at the menu. And I'm like, look at the menu. It hasn't changed since you were born. What do you uh, mean you got to look at the menu? You go menu? to McDonald's? You guys eat so clean. I can't believe you go to McDonald's. I do love a Big Mac. I really do love a Big yeah, Mac. Yeah, I haven't had meat since 1987. Really? Yeah. I don't have uh, your... beef uh, and red meat. I'll What's your beef with beef? Um, I was eating too much of it. It's hard to metabolize. They did a profile. I had a nutritionist person I was interviewing before, and and they say, hey, Brian, I'll help you out. Just write down everything you eat for two weeks. I, so I did. And she goes, I just kind of tell you, you're eating way too much meat. It's hard to metabolize. You get protein from other things. If you can cut it back, I go, I can cut it out. Because my, I have well, a slow metabolism. And so I go, if, I can, if that would speed up my metabolism, done. Well, so, you're you, look. You're fit. And you you look good. You're not play probably playing as much soccer as you, as you used to. And if it works for you, great. But my point being is, the person who comes to my table and says, "Oh, I'm going to memorize this," I just know they're not going to get it right after Julie makes right. twelve changes to the, you know, to a salad. They never get it right. No, because twelve changes later, um, they're just not going to get it right. I'm not blaming it at all on Julie. Just write it down. Anyway, well, no, I think you're right, especially Eve, if you could but tell. But the thing is, is like when when you do that, like if you order a steak, you have to be medium. So when you go to the computer, when I did it, so it'd be like the steak would be five twenty one. You hit in five twenty one, and then you what do you want on the and you want a potato? Okay, potato. You want butter on that? That's a modifier. And then when they say how do you want the steak cooked? A modifier is three. It would be medium, right? And okay. then so to me, I wouldn't even think about not writing it down. Because if you want to do three tables as on a sweep, <laughs> then it, and then I got to do it. Plus, I have no faith in my memory. 
You're, you're actually really a pro. So you're working Bennigan's and then and I started my own show and I got three sponsors and we launched our own local origination show called health digest. And we were, I learned the basics. I didn't have a great TV college Learned the basics on camera and every lighting, everything like that. And got all my friends together, many of which played soccer. And I go, guys, just come up, work camera for me. Can you do this? And can you do that? Then I went to a furniture store and I got, I convinced them for an on-screen credit to on a cable channel to them to do it. I got, we had, um, a, uh, hero deal, a catering deal. We had a, a limo deal and we would pick people up at giant stadium and do stuff. And Mike Francesa, who's a legendary guy here chris russo was on we had the tight end of the new york chat we had a lot of pretty cool features it was raw but i was getting a ton of experience and doing everything including the actual edits when you had to put the tapes in and uh and then write down your edits before and uh you know you had to do it on paper first now everyone does it differently but it was great experience but i really took all the money and put it back into the show so all my money was coming from uh, waitering, sales at gym memberships in order to keep this TV radio thing going. Wow. And so somebody was impressed with that or you just ran out of money? What happened? No, then I, I got a job. Um, I got a Channel One called, which was a National High School news program, really professionally done, went free into schools. And I had like Today Show producers. I literally would just show up and memorize their stand-ups. I had nothing to do with the writing. Anderson Cooper had started there. Some really established people, a Soledad O'Brien. So I got I was filling in, so I was doing some series there. So uh, what else was I doing I was doing those three things, and then I started at Sports Phone, 9761313, doing sports updates every seven minutes, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. Oh, um, that's a and lot. Yeah, you jam in. What you do is you learn to work without a script. Bottom of the fourth, Yankees up 4-3, RBI single by Jeter, drove in. It's all in hieroglyphics, your own code. And then you're able to run through that. You literally erase it, and then you write down the updated scores. You go in seven minutes later. And, and a lot of great people came through there. Al Troutwig, which is a, he's a big local guy. Uh, Howie Rose, he does the Mets play-by-play. Steve Torrey does uh, Mad Dog Radio. So a lot of really good people came through there. And accuracy, speed, uh, timing. Got to get out in 57 seconds in Chicago, 59 seconds in New York, 59 seconds in Detroit. And you got to lead with the appropriate teams depending on the city you're in. So that was before all sports radio. So people really who were betting or just loved sports would not want to wait till 11 o'clock news to find out who was winning. Right. So that, that was kind of popular, but I made all of $12,000 a year to work there. That was, that was before taxes. So I was taking home even less. Point? Were you no. married at this point? No. So I was making almost no money. That's why it took me till I was 33 to get this job. But for 12 years, I literally was doing four different jobs at the same time to get a tape together that would interest a place like Fox. Then I, I went to Los Angeles. I did all sports radio out there, worked for a local TV station and did stand up out there. And I was probably making, I was looking at my taxes the other day. I made $596 every two weeks to work at local news. Uh, and then I would get $200 a show to work in all sports radio. I was doing Kings, P and, Kings pre and post game on the radio, and then I would do a talk show on Sundays with Jim Brown, uh, the legendary running back activist. So I always, my life was dramatically underfinanced. <laughs> that, yes, I think it probably was. And why didn't you just keep going with sports? I mean, you... you well, I, I, I was. I thought that was my quickest way through. I didn't live for the games. I lived for the stories. Like, I don't really, you know, uh, you know, I want the Giants and Mets to win, but um, the times when I like lived and died with them stopped when I was about 12. Right. But I was just interested in the stories, who was going to emerge, what trade was going to work out, what free agent was going to bust, what the manager was going to do. So I was interested in that element of it, the people. But I wanted to be able to develop news at the same time i just want to keep pushing until something broke and i got hired as the sports guy at fox because i was working in all sports network that ended up failing uh with Cablevision and nbc launched a place called new sport and that ended up failing but i was still there when it was alive and i sent my tape in to fox and they came they said can you come in I go, when? They go, tomorrow. And I'm like, well, I'm working tomorrow. And they go, well, don't worry about it. Just take off. This will be a better opportunity for you. I'm like, okay, you're right. I don't, don't know why you give me that advice, but they were right. So I went in. They toured me around. They go, would you go on the air the next day? 
I go, you want me on the air the next day? He goes, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Now, no one was watching Fox anywhere. No one even knew what Fox News was. So I was literally at another channel on Fox and nobody saw me. I did the morning show. And then I started filling in. They what go, was yeah. it called back? Was it called, it was called Fox, Fox Express? Express? Yeah. Fox yeah. Express. What time was that show? Same time, six to nine. And it was yeah. a wheel. Every 15 minutes, the same news. So you got to rotate the sports in. So there wasn't much script. And I was used to that because of my background. I'm not used to having a script anyway. Felt very comfortable if things went wrong. I still do. You know, I love that stuff when things go wrong and or when, you know, script, you know, script or the something doesn't go right or they ask you to do it, extend it, cut it off. I like the I like the unpredictability of that show even then. And then I convinced them that I got to that. I knew news too gradually. And then when the world starts going crazy, I remember we were doing a three-hour sports show on Sundays and Princess Diana died. And we are like, okay, the Mets beat the Yankees 4-3. Princess Diana's dead, so let's go to the video on tape and see what we got. Oh, just nothing but stills. You know, so they're like, hey, you know, we really can't do a sports show on Sundays, but we think you could do news. So, and you don't have to work weekends. We think we're going to let you fill in full time. And I was making more in one day than I was making in my previous job. So I... I quit kind of bet that Fox was going to work out, and they by 97, they offered me a contract filling in in 96. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And, and it's been a whirlwind. And that, so any particular highlights, best, worst moment at Fox so far? Um, there's really not been a bad moment. I mean, you make mistakes on the air, and they write it up, and sometimes right. you got to acknowledge it. Sometimes it's just because people just don't like you and don't like what you said. Right. But, I mean— been, to be on the air for breaking news, to be there when the, the tanks roll into Iraq, I think is pretty significant to be on the air. When 9-11 happens, I think it's something you're never going to forget. I think, uh, you know, waking up and, you know, watching the, you know, the Donald Trump win the election and being on there and seeing our whole veranda packed with people and to be able to do that morning show for four hours, five hours with Trump's shocking win. Uh, that's pretty substantial. Uh, when I was covering the election mess with the Gore and Bush in Florida, tossing out the reporters, not knowing if they were going to say the Bush was president or Gore was president as they right. recounted all the votes. I think that's pretty significant. I mean, I can never, I covered 21 Super Bowls here and they've all been pretty cool, you know, um, and being able to do a lot of those opportunities. I, uh, you know, Rodman on live, having him in the morning after an all-night bender certainly made a lot of news. Uh, uh, Paul McCartney interviewing him at halftime after 9-11. I thought that was uh, pretty cool. That would be cool. I think if uh, I tried to make a list of like the 10 people I'd love to meet, shake hands, talk with, I think McCarthy, Paul McCartney would be on that list. Yeah, he, he's. I'm watching his documentary right now. This uh, this one, and um, they're amazing. What he did and how he did it, and right. uh, that he still can't read music. I'm just in fa- just fascinated. By yeah, it. that documentary is unbelievable. I started watching about 45 minutes of it. How the Beatles in their last session put together yeah, their yeah, last yeah, album. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. So you've been successful there. A lot of people want to be on, but you got on, and not everybody stays as long as you stay. What What do you credit that? success to i've always the one thing uh, i would put it this way um i think people like my style there's a lot of people that are sure that i'm not for them it's styles make fights styles make matches there's a lot of st- places i would never have lasted in cnn reading the teleprompter tossing back with a fake smile never i would never have been successful but this place is built on you being you for better or for worse and and it worked for fox and not because conservative or liberal or moderate. I think it's because they, the, if you read Roger Ailes' book, it was You Are the Message. So better or for worse, you're the message. Be yourself. And the fact that I could be myself and, and have a chance to put my best step forward rather than you know, be in this cookie cutter, get in and out in three and a half minutes, you know, and plus they're, they're very success oriented. If the show works, I stay. If the show wasn't working, I would have been pulled off the show, filling in for a little while. And then when my contract came up, they probably would have said, I think it's best you try find somewhere else so you can work full time. But the show worked and it, and I didn't screw it up. So I try to not create waves. I try to do what I'm in control of the best I can. And the only thing is with sports as well as with this is I have endurance. I never had speed, but I have endurance. If I could work my way to stay in, I can do it. Like I said, if someone said, do this algebra product or this geometry uh, quiz, I would have been unsuccessful. But if someone says, be you, and if you can prepare 
and deliver, you'll be successful. I think I have a shot. So I could actually blue collar it here. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And you've shown that throughout your career, right? I mean, right. you wouldn't have gotten those jobs with Mr. Seinfeld and the lawyer and everyone else if you weren't just willing to go out and work hard and then yeah. Yeah, just have the tenacity to keep after it. Because yeah, I can't imagine you in like an eight to five job, just uh, right. you know, cl- clipping on the on the bow tie and or doing whatever. I just can't see that. All right. Last, last question I got to ask you, Brian. Yep. What is the best advice you ever got? Best advice I ever got. My best advice I ever got, I remember meeting with this guy named Jamie Kellner who went to the same school as I went to. So I was out in California looking for a big job and I got an offer to come back to New York and be a sports guy at a local station. And so I'm meeting with him. He said, yeah, before you go back to New York, I want to meet with you. So I met with him. So I said, yeah, after this job, um, I would love to do this. And I was wondering, well, how could I best get more of a, uh, more into a news format or whatever I was telling him. And he just stopped me and he said, don't look past any job. He goes, you have to focus on being great at this job before you look to do another job. So don't be so ambitious that you don't appreciate what you have. Focus on what you just got. And there's no way to show less gratitude than to look past the job that someone just gave you. I was like, wow, that was, that was kind of jarring. And I do say it's kind of insulting if someone hires you and you say, yeah, I'm looking past that job. I can't wait to get the next job. I was like, really? I chose you out of a huge stack of tapes and you're looking past me. So that's probably the advice that stands out. And Jamie Kellner was one of the founders of the Fox Network, ironically well, enough. And this wasn't about a Fox job. Great advice. Uh, you, you've, uh, you've been in a lot of people's homes for a long time and uh, you've written some great books that are really fun, fun reads. I highly, highly encourage people to get them. Brian Kilmeade, thank you so much for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. Thanks a lot. President Freedom Fighter, BrianKilmeade.com. You get it personalized. If you click on that, it go right to my local bookstore and I could sign it to you and get it out by Christmas because China doesn't make it and it's not on a barge in Los Angeles. It's made in America. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, thank you so much. Take Go care. get him, Jason. I can't thank Brian enough for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. He, he's a, it's a fascinating guy, what he's gone through to get to to Fox. He's one of the, the main staples there, and he's just a really good guy. And i got to love a guy who plays a lot of soccer as well. So thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. You can find more about Fox News Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. i uh, hoping you can rate it and subscribe to our podcast today. We'd appreciate that. We'll be back with more next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the House. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.